Uh, if you're new this morning, we are slowly working our way through John's gospel. Let me pray once again and ask for God's blessing as the word is preached. Father, we thank you for giving us so many reasons uh, to worship you this morning. Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired, and errant word. We pray now that as the word is preached, you would open our eyes to your glory and splendor. Father, we confess that nothing good will happen unless you send your spirit, so send your spirit now to give each one of us the gift of understanding. Lord, to help us to not just listen, but help us to worship um, as we think about the glory and splendor of Jesus Christ, our great prophet, priest, and king. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers in church history. He preached in the 1740s in America and then also in Britain. He could preach to crowds of 30,000 with no microphone. Imagine the Spokane Arena, but three times bigger, that seats about 10,000 people, and one guy speaking to that many people. He was the primary catalyst of what was called the Great Awakening, America's Greatest Revival. Uh, his biographer, Thomas Kidd, argues that he was the most popular, well-known person in the colonies, even more well-known than Ben Franklin. Speaking of Ben Franklin, they happen to be very close friends. Uh, Forty-five times Whitfield's sermons were reprinted in Franklin's newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, and eight times the sermons filled the entire front page. Franklin uh, published ten editions of Whitfield's journals and sold thousands of reprints of Whitfield's sermons. Franklin made lots of money off of George Whitfield. On more than one occasion, Whitfield stayed in Franklin's home. When some of the religious elites criticized Whitfield in print, uh, Franklin defended him in print, and these two friends corresponded for over 30 years. Despite all this, Ben Franklin never became a Christian, and he was really close friends with America's greatest preacher and evangelist, George Whitfield, who actually was from the UK, but he spent a lot of time in America. And no doubt, uh, Whitfield prayed for him, evangelized him. They corresponded over 30 years. Uh, Franklin read lots of his sermons. Franklin was moved to tears by his sermons. But Franklin never believed. He never became a Christian. And the question is, why? Why did Franklin not believe when he was exposed to so much good gospel preaching? That raises a larger question. Why don't other people believe? Why don't our friends, family, and loved ones believe? And this brings us to John 12, 37 to 50. We're at the very end of Christ's public ministry. And to this point, Christ has performed some pretty spectacular miracles. He has raised the dead, turned water into wine, and done many, many other things, yet people still refuse to believe. Why? Well, John is trying to answer this question with this section of Scripture. In fact, one scholar calls this section, 37 to 50, uh, a short theology of unbelief. So why don't these people believe? John gives us four reasons, and we'll look at those four reasons this morning. First, unbelief is prophesied. Again, given all that Jesus did, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, walking on water, and raising the dead, why don't some believe? 
to answer that question, John goes back to the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before the time of Christ. So why don't some believe? Because unbelief was prophesied by Isaiah. Look with me at verses 37 to 39. Though he had done so many signs before them, referring to Jesus, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. John cites here from Isaiah 51, verse 3. Isaiah 53, as many of you know, predicts the coming of the Messiah, the sin bearer, the suffering servant. And Isaiah asks a rhetorical question. He says, who has believed in the Messiah? Who's going to believe in this guy? And the answer is, not many. Then verse 39 says, therefore, quoting Isaiah, they could not believe. In other words, they would not believe because it was prophesied that they could not believe. Just to make sure that we get the point, John quotes Isaiah another time in the next section. Verses 39 to 41. Therefore, they could not believe, for again, quoting Isaiah again, Isaiah said, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John 12, 39 cites Isaiah 6, 10, and John proves from Isaiah that some in Israel did not believe in Christ because it was prophesied that God would, quote, blind their eyes and harden their hearts. Again, John is asking the question, why are these people in Israel in Christ's day not believing in the Christ despite all the evidence? And the answer is surprising. The answer is because 700 years beforehand, Isaiah prophesied that they wouldn't believe because God was going to harden their hearts. Whoa, Dave, that's not fair. If it was prophesied that they could not believe, how could they believe? If I said to you, God told me that you're going to have Cheerios for breakfast tomorrow, is it possible to have Wheaties for breakfast tomorrow? No. It's been prophesied. How do we res respond to this objection? That's not fair. This seems like capricious fatalism. Well, Throughout the Bible, we see over and over and over again that somehow God's sovereignty is compatible with our choices. Consider Romans 9. There's another story of God hardening someone's heart. Romans 9, 16 to 18, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, quoting from Exodus, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But here's the thing. Here's the mystery. In Exodus 8.32, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then we read in Exodus 9.12 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart, God or Pharaoh? Yes, <laughs> somehow both these things are true. Again, God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility, and we see the same thing in John 12. 
John 12, 37 presumes that humans are responsible to believe. Listen to what John says. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. All the signs that they saw should have convinced them that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. Yet they chose not to believe. But then, verse 39 presumes they can't believe. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, that is God, blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Again, somehow, God's sovereignty is compatible with our choices. Yet God's not the author of evil, and we see this so clearly in Acts 2, this principle of God controlling all things, yet he's not the author of evil, and we make real choices. Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2, 23. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion of the Son of God was planned and designed and foreordained by God the Father. But then, Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, implying that on the day of judgment, they're going to be liable, not God the Father. How does that work? I don't know how that works. This is what the Bible says. How about Acts 4, 27 to 28? Again, Peter preaching, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, Peter is saying that God had a definite plan. His plan was to have his son crucified for the sins of the world, yet on the day of judgment, God is gonna hold these people accountable for murdering him. Somehow, in God's way of doing things, God is so incredibly big and powerful and wise that he controls every single detail of the universe. Even this action right here was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But I am doing this, I promise, freely of my own accord. How does that work? I don't, I don't know. But aren't you glad that God controls all things, good and bad? Otherwise, how, is, how would he be able to work all things for our goodness and glory? Here's the point here. John's answering the question. Why don't some believe? Answer, their unbelief due to their hardness of heart was prophesied. That's why they're not believing. It's not a lack of evidence. It's hardness of heart. Here's the takeaway. Don't let your heart grow hard. Some people think, well, I can wait a little bit longer to follow Jesus. I just want to have a little bit of fun for a while. Then maybe after college, after marriage, after kids, after career advancement, then I'll get serious about following Jesus. Jesus. But these people don't realize the longer they ignore Jesus, the harder their hearts get. And this pattern is seen so clearly in Romans chapter 1, which I read last night. 
three or four times in Romans 1, Paul says that God eventually gives us over to our own sinful wants and desires. If we ignore God long enough, our hearts grow really hard, and then we can't believe because God's given us over to hardness of heart. If you don't believe me, go read the second half of Romans 1 this afternoon. It's exactly what Paul says happens to those who ignore God again and again and again. The longer you ignore his commands to repent of your sins and trust him, the harder it will be for you to do that because your heart's going to grow hard and cold and shriveled. Um, Commenting on this verse, one scholar says this, when people of their own accord and after repeated threats and promises reject him and spurn his messages, then and not until then, he hardens them in order that those who are not willing to repent may not be able to repent. And that is the worst place you ever want to be. A place where you have ignored God for so long, you can no longer repent because your heart is so hard. What that means is, if you're not a Christian, you must turn to Christ today. You must make a decision to turn away from your sins and put all your hope and confidence in King Jesus. And when you do, he will declare you righteous, forgive you of all your sins, make you his child, work all things for your good and his glory, which raises the question, why in the world would you not Turn to Jesus now. Look to him for salvation, healing, and wholeness. Don't let your heart grow cold. Turn to Jesus now. The harder your heart gets, the harder it will be for you to follow Jesus, and the more you'll crave respectability, which brings us to the second point. First, unbelief is prophesied. Second, unbelief is respectable. Again, answering the question, why do some not believe? Unbelief is prophesied. Unbelief is respectable. What do I mean respectable? Unbelief is often and increasingly more respectable than belief. Look with me at uh, John 12, 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So fortunately, some of these leaders saw the evidence that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and they believed, but they kept their faith secret because they craved the respect of the leaders. Verse 43, for they loved the glory or respect that comes from man more than the glory that comes from from God. They craved the approval and the respect of their peers and the religious leaders. And that kept them from speaking out about Jesus. And how often are you and I guilty of the same thing? The reason we don't talk to people about Jesus is because we're idolaters. In that moment, we love the respect or praise of men more than we love Jesus. What is that called in the Bible? Idolatry. Idolatry, which must be repented of. 
And I get it. There's a big temptation more and more and more to love the respect of our peers, to not be thought of as a religious, intolerant nut job. When you say to your friends, if you don't put your hope and confidence in Jesus, you will go to hell forever, they're often going to respect you less, not more. When you say to your friends, this is what the Bible says about sexuality and gender, they're going to respect you probably less than they used to. When you say to your friends, Jesus Christ is the only way to God, conscious faith in him is required for you to be saved, you're going to lose their respect. They're not going to like you as much anymore. I was thinking about this this morning, and I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I was born in 76. In the 80s, in our culture, Christianity was still seen as something that was somewhat good for society. Christians are nice people. They do nice things for others. Things have changed dramatically. Now Christianity is seen as intolerant, intolerant, hateful, and bigoted. So when you tell your friends about Jesus, they're probably not going to respect you. And make no mistake, all of us, most of the time, crave the respect of our peers. The Bible calls this fear of man. We want other people to think that we're really smart, kind, wonderful, intelligent, reasonable people. And often that craving, that longing for approval, is what keeps us from opening up our mouths and talking about Jesus. The religious leaders crave respectability. Hugh Latimer did not. Hugh Latimer was one of the five English reformers. He was infamous because, along with the other five men, they were all burned at the stake. They were all martyred for preaching the gospel. He was one of the greatest preachers of the 16th century in England. He was incredibly fearless. And because he was such a good preacher, he was asked to preach before King Henry VIII. Now, if you know your history, you know King Henry VIII was not a paragon of tolerance, virtue, and patience. He had six wives. Here's how you keep them straight. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. That means that he divorced two of his wives and he beheaded two of his wives. A guy to be feared. So King Henry VIII calls Latimer before his throne to preach to him. And the message that God brought to Latimer, Latimer realized the king probably did not want to hear. And again, think about who this guy is. He has all power. He could easily lop off Latimer's head for saying one wrong or offensive thing. So as he begins his sermon before the king and the royal court, he says this out loud, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty king Henry VIII, who has power to command you to be sent to prison, and who can have your head cut off if it pleases him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? He paused and continued. Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before him and at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him 
to whom one day you will have to give an account yourself. Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. And eventually, Latimer was burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, Henry VIII's Catholic daughter. Why? Because he did not crave the respect of the leaders. He knew that all the matter was the respect of King Jesus. Furthermore, Latimer knew this whole issue is a gospel issue. The reason that you and I struggle with fear of man is because the gospel has not sinked down far enough into our souls. If you and I really believe with our heart of hearts that we have all the acceptance and approval and respect of God Almighty through the shed blood of his son Jesus Christ, why in the world do I need the respect or approval of you or anyone else? I have the respect and approval of the triune God. If we really believe that, really believe that, we're going to open up our mouths and talk about Jesus to our friends. So what's the solution? Repent of your idolatry and embrace the gospel. Believe the gospel more, and that will give you boldness and courage. Unbelief may seem more respectable at times, but unbelief is incredibly perilous, which brings us to the third point. Unbelief is prophesied. Unbelief is respectable. Third, unbelief is perilous. Why is unbelief perilous? Because unbelief leads to judgment. Look at verses 47 to 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, says Jesus, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, these verses have confused some because it seems like Jesus Christ is saying here he didn't come to judge, but in the other verses, he clearly says he will judge someday. For instance, 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says that Jesus will, quote, judge the living and the dead. Or Jesus taught in Matthew 25, 31 and 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So what's going on here? Did Christ come to judge or not? The first time Christ came, he did not come to judge. He came to save. Aren't you glad? But when Christ returns, make no mistake, he will judge the entire world and righteousness. And he will judge, he says in this passage, based on his words that he spoke to them, based on the scriptures for us. Christ will judge everyone who's ever lived, and those who do not believe will not survive judgment. Judgment is inevitable for all of us. Adolf Eichmann was one of Hitler's deadliest lieutenants during World War II. During the war, Eichmann did unspeakably horrible things to the Jews. He was an evil, monstrous man. After World War II, the world wanted justice. And so, they rounded up as many war criminals as possible. They searched every corner of the globe to bring these war criminals to trial. 
As a result, many of these lieutenants and generals of Hitler took their lives to avoid being judged at Nuremberg by the world. But instead of suicide, Adolf Eichmann fled to Buenos Aires, Argentina. He took on a new name, a new identity, and he worked in a factory, and he lived in a very modest, humble home. And for 15 years, everyone thought that he was dead. He thought that he had escaped judgment. He thought that he was safe. He thought that he was free. But due to a series of serendipitous circumstances, his identity was discovered. And so a covert group of Jewish operatives moved into Buenos Aires and tracked his movements for quite a while, and then they went in under cover of darkness and kidnapped him and then flew him back to Israel to stand on trial uh, before the world in the nation of Israel. It was an eight-month, very public trial. At the end, of course, he was condemned as a criminal and put to death. But here's the thing. He thought that he'd escaped justice. He thought that he had escaped punishment. For 15 years, he lived free. But eventually, justice found him. Many of you think at some point you will escape judgment. You think that life will be fine. Somehow, some way, you'll avoid standing before Jesus Christ, the great, perfect, awesome, and powerful judge of the universe. But every single person that's ever lived will someday stand before the all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous gaze of King Jesus. And he requires perfection from everyone. If you're not a believer, you are in severe trouble. Although we can't avoid judgment, we can still survive judgment. Which brings us to the fourth and final point. Unbelief is prophesied. Unbelief is respectable. Unbelief is perilous. Fourth, unbelief, fortunately, is optional. <laughs> Which means that unbelief is optional. You have the option of believing, which is incredibly good news. Well, what must we believe? We must believe that Jesus is God. Look with me at verse 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. These are incredibly bold and courageous words. Jesus Christ is clearly saying that I am in close relationship with God the Father, God Almighty. God the Father and I, he's saying, are one. To believe in Christ is to believe in the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. To hear Christ is to hear the Father. To love Christ is to love the Father. On the other hand, rejection of Christ in his words is also a rejection of God the Father, which means it's not enough to believe in God or the man upstairs or some kind of superpower. It's not enough to believe in the Muslim God or the Mormon God because the Muslim God and the Mormon God, the Jehovah's Witness God, is not Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. To deny his deity is to, to, is to deny the Father's deity, according to Jesus in these verses, which means we must believe in Jesus Christ. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. They are equal in power and glory, three distinct persons in one essence. To, to deny Jesus is to deny the Father. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, what does it mean to believe? Belief, saving faith, is often summarized with the acronym CAT, K-A-T. Knowledge, assent, and trust. All three of those things must be in place for faith to be saving faith. Knowledge, you have to know the facts about Jesus Christ and your sins. Assent, you have to assent or agree those facts are true. But that's not enough for you to be saved. You can know all the facts, agree they're true, and still not be saved. That's scary. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You have to personally, individually trust Jesus Christ to save you, which means, children, you are not saved based on the faith of your parents. You're not saved based on your knowledge of the Bible. You're not saved because you think certain facts are true. You must personally trust Jesus. You must personally say, I'm a sinner. And I desperately need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for me to be saved. That's what saving faith is. We must believe that Jesus is God. Well, why should we believe? We should believe to escape the darkness. Look with me at verse 45 and 46. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Those who believe in Jesus Christ can escape the darkness, which includes the darkness of sin, the darkness of demonic oppression, the darkness of brokenness, the darkness of hell and wrath, but it also includes the darkness of meaninglessness and despair. Increasingly, people all around us in our culture are filled with despair because many of them increasingly don't believe that God exists. If there is no God, life has no meaning or purpose, which explains why suicide is on the rise in our culture. The atheistic worldview of Richard Dawkins causes him to write this. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. Another philosopher writes this, without God, the universe is the result of a cosmic accident, a chance explosion. There's no reason for which it exists. As for man, he is a freak of nature, a blind product of matter plus time plus chance. Man's just a lump of slime that evolved rationally. There's no more purpose in life for the human race than for a species of insect. For both are the result of the blind interaction of chance and necessity. This is increasingly the worldview of your friends and loved ones. This is illustrated very well in a play by Samuel Beckett in the theater, The Absurd. It's a very short play. Here's how the play works. The screens open, and you hear the sound of an infant crying. Then you see on the stage a pile of junk 
30 seconds later, the curtains close, and you hear an old man sigh his last breath. That's the whole play. (laughs) Happy play, huh? What's the point of the play? Life is incredibly short and meaningless, and your life is basically as meaningful as a pile of junk. And again, if there is no God, that's absolutely true. That's the darkness of meaninglessness and despair. But Jesus Christ came to dispel the darkness. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, he brings glorious gospel light to all of us. He brings the light of forgiveness, the light of purpose, the light of meaning, the light of hope. Someday, if you're a Christian, you have the hope you will spend all eternity in the new creation. That's really true. Do you believe what you believe about that? Do you believe that someday you'll spend all eternity in a glorified resurrection body on this earth, recreated, without any of the effects of sin. If that's true, that changes everything in the here and now, but do you and I really believe that? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Christ helps us escape the darkness of this world. Furthermore, you and I have the incredible privilege of telling a lost and dying and very dark world about the light of Christ. That light is offered to us free of charge, which raises the question, who can you tell this week about the light of Christ? Well, Ben Franklin never believed the gospel, which is amazing because he was homies with George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of all time. They corresponded for over 30 years. Whitfield stayed in his home. Whitfield prayed for him. Tried to persuade him of the claims of Christ, Whitfield or Franklin never, ever believed. As a result now, he is in the outer darkness, separated from God's good, benevolent presence. But you don't have to end up like Ben Franklin. You can spend now and all eternity in the light of Christ. All you have to do, all you have to do is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Let's pray together.